I hope you are disinterested in what I have to say uh, and eager to hear what God has to say. Um, and that's the goal. Uh, I hope you were blessed. Last week, Quentin Whitford was here um, preaching in my place. I was in his typical pulpit in South Calgary. And we did that because the week prior, we were at um, the, the annual conference for the, the Great Commission Collective or the GCC. And uh, that was out in, in Ontario. And it was so, so good to be out, out there. Um, conference I was attended by about 800 people, over 800 people, 109 different GCC churches from 11 different countries. Um, It was a fantastic time just to catch up. Um, And uh, let me take a moment to say thank you. Thank you for sending me. Uh, It is so important. It is so good to be part of that. Um, The GCC has kind of two primary purposes, um, planting churches and strengthening leaders. And so as Beth and I were on the way out the door, our kids were bemoaning the fact that we always get to go on airplanes and go places and, and they're left behind. And, uh, and we were able to explain to them, yeah, you're, you're not coming, but this is good for you. Um, this will bless you as well. And, uh, and I think I can say that to you as the church as well. Um, we're, we're here and we are still here uh, in large part because of God's grace through the GCC. And uh, this, this conference... I uh, was part of that, but, but we're here in the first place. Redemption Church Olds was planted by Redemption Church Calgary North as part of our partnership with the GCC, working together to do that. So the fact that we're here in the first place, um, but we're also still here because of God's grace through the GCC. And I can say that personally. Um, I don't know if you've seen the stats Barner Research Group put out recently. 42% of pastors, quote, gave real serious consideration to quitting full-time ministry within the last year. Um, We we are in the middle of a pastoral resignation um, across North America, Um, 42% this year alone. That's that's tragic. Um, We're not graduating enough seminary students to fill those. Um, Don't get me wrong. I love the church. I love this church. I love the privilege of being your pastor. Uh, by God's grace, I'm not among the 42%. This is not a resignation preamble. Um, let you off the hook there. Um, but a lot of that uh, is through God's grace that has come through uh, the Great Commission Collective. Um, and uh, that, that's the idea of strengthening leaders. And so this last, this last week, the, the conference theme was unashamed, coming out of Romans 1.16. And uh, on top of fellowshipping with faithful brothers and sisters, catching up with people that planted churches the same times we did, and, and, and all of that, worshiping together with 800 other church leaders, um, we were challenged through solid preaching each session, um, hold to unashamedly to the glorious gospel, um, press to unashamed gospel preaching, unashamed integrity, unashamed care, unashamed ambition, and unashamed endurance. And, and so your pastor's soul was fortified this last week. It was, it was good. And even more so, there were six of us from this congregation that went together, um, worship together, pray for one another, share with one another. What are you learning? What are you seeing? Um, huge blessing, huge encouragement. And uh, so I'm excited to be back and excited to open the word with you. So let's get into that. Um, looking at Genesis chapter 28, we, consider, we, we continue through this just this soap opera of, of the life of, of Isaac and, and Jacob. Um, if you remember chapter 27, we found Isaac and Esau um, fighting against God's plan. Um, 
Even though God had promised the the younger would serve the older, that that Esau would serve Jacob, that Jacob would be the one to carry on the blessing, um, Isaac and Esau are trying to secure that for Esau. They're fighting against God's plan. We found Rebecca and Jacob um, lying and conniving, trying to bring about the right ends, but going about it by twisted and sinful means, going about it their own way for their own selfish purposes. This whole family is just wrapped up in in deceit and and disunity. Um, It's a mess. And yet God was right there in the mess. He's unfolding his good plan, working um, not only over top of it, but right through it. Through the the sinful and distorted efforts of Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau. And so here in chapter 28, uh, we come to this iconic scene uh, of Jacob's ladder. And it's significant that it comes here. We, we find this ladder in the darkness. And that's, I think, exactly the point of this passage. Have a look with me. Um, chapter 28. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 9 to start as we kind of get underway. It says, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, Arise and go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take your wife from there, from one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Badan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Badan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Um, and that Jacob had obeyed his father, and his mother had gone to and mother had gone to Badan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, beside the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Do you pray with me? We go to God's word. Father, thank you for your grace towards us, your faithfulness. Lord, thank you that you've given us your word. God, we are so flippant and distracted and busy going about our own selfish ways. Thank you that your word um, is here to challenge us, to confront us, to shape us and form us, to renew our mind as we struggle uh, in a broken culture, a broken world. Um, Lord, we want to think like you. We want to know you for who you really are, not for some uh, imagination of of our own. God, we want to know your grace and your salvation uh, and the the truth. Uh, So Lord, open our eyes, soften our hard hearts, Um, undo the corruption of our world on us, form us and shape us to the image of Christ this morning as we come to your word. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
these first few verses, one to nine, um, we see a, a contrast building between uh, Jacob and Esau, and not to remind us of God's grace towards Jacob, and that we too need to recognize God's undeserved plan. That's, that's point one this morning, to recognize God's undeserved plan. The contrast is partly between the two brothers, but actually it's even more starkly between Isaac, the father, and Esau, because Isaac has made this about face. He, he's, he's going a totally different direction, and Esau is just continuing down his old path. The story flows directly out of chapter 27. Uh, Esau was furious with Jacob for, for swindling him out of the blessing, for tricking his father uh, and getting the blessing that was supposed to go to him. And so Esau had planned to kill Jacob. Rebekah, the mother, is uh, keeping a close watch on her family, and she is a little bit devious and conniving. And so she um, sends, she um, manipulates Isaac, send, send Jacob away to Padan Aram to find a wife there, um, just trying to get Jacob out of harm's way, trying to get him away until Esau has cooled off. But as Isaac sent Jacob away, uh, he sent him away with his blessing. And, and this is significant because even though Jacob had in one sense already, sorry, Isaac had already blessed Jacob, it was under false pretenses. It was a lie. He thought he was blessing Esau and not Jacob. But now with, with full knowledge of who he is blessing and what he's doing, uh, Isaac gives the rightful blessing to Jacob again. And this time his blessing is much more what we would expect it to be. It clearly reflects the covenant that God has made with Abraham. That the Lord gave to Abraham and then reiterated to Isaac, and now he's passing that specific blessing on to Jacob. Isaac introduces it with the words, God Almighty, that is El Shaddai, that's the, the Hebrew name there for God Almighty, the title that, that the Lord used back in Genesis 17 as he's explaining this covenant to Abraham. Standard pieces that we expect are all there. God will make you fruitful, will multiply you. God will give you uh, the land of your sojournings. And then there's this cool nuance in the third piece this time around. Rather than the typical statement, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you, Isaac says um, that you may become a company of peoples. Same promise, different language. And it's also significant that it's coming to Jacob. If that was said to, to Abraham, uh, it would be possible to see that as a reference to all these different nations that came out of Abraham. There's not only the nation of Israel, but there were 12 nations that came from Ishmael and the nations from Esau and others. But that doesn't work if we're looking at Jacob. The 12 tribes will be one people through Jacob, but that's not a company of peoples the word company here is a, a, a fantastic word in this instance. I think it's somewhat coincidental if we can ever say that about God's word. Um, it's also translated assembly or congregation. If you were to translate into Greek, you would get ecclesia, the word we would translate to church. And that's exactly what this is pointing forward to. All the nations will be blessed through Jacob as an assembly of nations are gathered together, an assembly of peoples through his offspring. But through Jesus, who would be born of the line of Jacob, 
the promise of Abraham would be enjoyed by many nations as they're gathered together as one people into the body of Christ, into the church. And so you can see just God's singular, seamless plan working its way out from Abraham uh, through the old covenant, through the covenant made with, with Moses and with David and, and, and with Christ and with us. It's the same plan working its way out. So we get it back on task here. Isaac giving this blessing to Jacob. It's his submission to God's plan. He's finally giving up on on fighting God. God had said that before the twins were even born that the younger will serve the older, but the the older was Isaac's favorite, and so he was trying to change things. This is Isaac doing what he should have done in the first place. This is the proper blessing that Jacob should have gotten. But it's also so clearly and so completely undeserved to Jacob. This is directly following Jacob's sin in in deceiving his father, his outright lies, even bringing God into his lie, if you remember. He hasn't repented. He hasn't changed. He he deserves to be cut off from the family. He, He deserves to be excluded from the blessing. But this is God's plan. This has always been God's plan that that the older would serve the younger, that Jacob would be the one who would be blessed. He's pouring out his grace on the undeserving, and he's setting it up that way on purpose. And Isaac is now getting on board. Isaac is seeing this for what it is. On the other hand, we see this parenthetical note, verses 6 to 9, about Esau. Esau's watching all of this play out, And while Isaac is submitting to God's undeserved plan, he's accepting this is what God is doing and he's getting on board. Esau is trying to still work his own system. He's still trying to make this happen his own way. He's he's the perfect example um, of how we operate in our own wisdom. He has despised the blessing of God. He sold it uh, for a a bowl of stew. And then all of a sudden, now he, he wants it again because it's right there in, in front of him, but he seems to want it for, for selfish, fleshly reasons. Even here, he saw that the, the Canaanite women did not please his father. He's already married two Canaanite women at least, and they've become a thorn in the flesh in this family. And so still wanting to get some of the blessings, oh God, or Isaac doesn't like Jacob marrying the Canaanite women, so maybe I'll marry uh, someone else. I'll go find another wife who's not Canaanite. He goes to to Ishmael, one of the descendants of Ishmael, and he marries an Ishmaelite girl. Of course, Ishmael is the other cast-off son of of Abraham, the son of the slave woman. He's not getting any closer. He's still totally missing it. He's, He's scrambling by his human effort, trying to earn God's blessing. Coming to this passage on Jacob's ladder, I was joking with Roman what should our closing song be? I said, well, can you make Stairway to Heaven work? Um, there's a song written about this already. Um, I don't claim to understand the lyrics to Stairway to Heaven, but I had to listen to it again. Um, and, and at least the opening, this is it, right? There's a lady who knows all that glitters is gold and she's buying a Stairway to Heaven. That's Jacob's mentality. I'll figure this out. I'll get my way there. It's not working. It's not God's plan. God had promised that those who bless Jacob will be blessed. God is not honored by Esau scrambling and trying to earn God's blessing, trying to buy something that is meant to be given as an undeserved gift. 
if he actually honored the Lord, he actually understood what God was doing and humbled himself before it, he would have seen that. He would have seen God's promise to bless those who bless Jacob, and he would have submitted himself to the Lord's plan. He would have humbled himself in support and blessing his brother Jacob. That would have been his path into God's blessing, but he won't go that way. That way is humiliating. He wants to keep his pride intact. He wants to be able to do it for himself, as we so often do, but that is not God's way. He's still so caught up in his own plan, his own will, his own wisdom, and, and, and he just makes more of a mess. He just compounds the problem. It's a perfect example of Isaiah 64, 6. We've all become like one who's unclean and even our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment and we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. He's trying to make this better and even his supposed deeds of righteousness are just digging the hole deeper. He's the perfect example of us in our flesh trying to impress God. He didn't understand. He didn't submit to God's plan. So even his best efforts are just making it worse. You can't earn what the Lord is freely giving. God's blessing on Jacob was completely undeserved. And Esau's human efforts are of no value. The only way to receive the Lord's blessing is to, to recognize, to submit to his undeserved plan. Just like for Esau where the Lord's blessing would only come through Jacob as, as the Lord's plan unfolds today, the Lord's blessing will only come through Jesus. Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The way to God is not through cleaning yourself up enough. The way to God is not through checking the boxes and doing enough good work. Those things are of no value. It's, it's like Esau, totally missing the point. The only way to God's blessing is to stop the work and the struggle and the striving to recognize God's undeserved plan, to look with complete humility to Jesus, to understand that we are totally undeserving, and, and that's exactly the point. So first we see we have to recognize his undeserved plan Secondly, as we move into verses 10 to 15, we see the need to rest in his unparalleled promise. To rest in his unparalleled promise. Let me read this next section for us. Starting verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and he went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. 
This next scene opens in the darkness, in a strange, unnamed place. Yes, Jacob has has received the blessing from his father, but now he's been sent out. and, And that whole thing is just clouded by his own sin. That's why he got the blessing in the first place, through trickery. That's why he's now been forced to leave his home. He's, he's, from his father's perspective, he's been sent out to find a wife. He knows he's fleeing from his murderous brother. He doesn't know that he's fleeing to his enslaving uncle. He's in the middle of the mess. The picture of falling darkness here and falling asleep in an unnamed place, this is meaningful imagery. This is a low moment for Jacob. He has been promised offspring and land and blessing, and because of his sin, he is journeying by himself through the wilderness. He has none of it. And yet that's exactly where the Lord meets him. Once again, we see so clearly what has been shown over and over again through the the story of Abraham in particular. Our sin does not thwart God's plan. It's not a surprise to him. It doesn't, doesn't take things off course. Rather, the Lord's actually working through that sin, the sin of Isaac, the sin of Rebekah and Jacob and Esau. He is, he is working in it and through it to bring about his good plan. And it's here in the dark, in this unknown place, as he ran for his life, he fell asleep and the Lord met him there in this dream. And we find this iconic picture of Jacob's ladder. And though we call it Jacob's ladder, um, That's probably not quite the right word. Um, The ESV has a a footnote there. If you're reading ESV, maybe your Bible does as well. If it's something else, um, you look down at the bottom of the page, the other suggestion is a flight of stairs. I I think that's a better interpretation. Sadly, stairway to heaven, got it closer. Um, A ladder with rungs, I think doesn't quite fit. That would be a little bit odd here, but very common in the ancient Near East was the ziggurat. These massive towers with a prominent stairway heading up. They were built as temples. And the idea was to be reaching up to the gods. This is Esau's plan in another context. They built these all over the place. They were particularly common in Ur, where Abraham was from. Jacob's dream, the angels are going up and down on this staircase that actually goes between heaven and earth. Verse 13, he looked and there was the Lord. Uh, Again, the Hebrew is not overly precise there. There's a a footnote. Again, um, the Lord is either standing above the staircase or beside Jacob. It could be either way. And here the Lord himself gives Jacob the promises of the covenant of Abraham. Of course, Isaac's blessing as his father um, is significant, but it's only actually as significant as the Lord's blessing, right? The blessing of man has no magical power. It's God's blessing that matters. And so the Lord is reiterating for Jacob, is reinstalling this for him. God, again, connects it to the blessing to Abraham. He says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. From here forward, he'll be known also as the God of Jacob. And the Lord repeats this promise that we've come to know and love through the last chapters to give him the land, to multiply his offspring, that through his offspring, all the families of the earth would be blessed. God's plan that started with Abraham would come through Isaac and now through Jacob. And on top of that, then, 
the Lord gives to Jacob these personal promises in, in verse 15. There's three parts to this promise. The Lord says to Jacob, uh, I am with you. Number one, I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back. Number two, to this land. I'm going to restore you to here, and I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised. All of this is spoken to Jacob in the dark of night at his lowest point. Maybe that's the word of comfort that, that you need to hear this morning. Maybe you find yourself facing some hard times in life right now. Maybe some of those difficulties stem from decisions that you've made, decisions that you regret. Maybe some of those decisions were sinful. Maybe some of those decisions were just stupid. And you get to wondering, what now? Have I messed this up? Have I, have I messed up God's plan? Have I derailed this whole thing? And now, now my life is a painful mess and there's, there's no going back because of my sinful or just stupid decisions. Well, there's no doubt our decisions have consequences. And that's where Jacob is right now. He's in the midst of the consequences of his sin, and yet the Lord is still over it. It's not an either or. The Lord meets Jacob there. He blesses Jacob right in the middle of those consequences. Yes, it was the consequences of Jacob's sin, but it was also God's plan to bless Jacob. However you got where you are now, you're not outside of God's plan. You've not somehow derailed the plan of the Almighty God. I hate to break it to you. You're just not that good. You can't do it. You're not able. What you need to do now is trust the Lord in it. I got here by disobedience. How do I obey now? How do I walk faithful the next step forward from here? Walking in obedience from here? How do I trust the Lord and work through it? How do I even look for the blessing of the Lord in it? Um, I, I love Buckley's cough syrup because it's the best. It, just, it works, right? But if you had never had Buckley's and you were walking along with a, a cough and some stranger gave you a cup of Buckley's and said, here, drink this, and you threw it back, and all of a sudden your eyes start to burn and your throat is on fire and this horrendous taste comes and takes over your mouth, you would think this person has poisoned me, right? I'm going to die now. This is horrible. I don't like it. But if that same cup was given to you by a longtime friend who was a doctor that you knew and trusted, you would think this is horrible, but wow, this must be good medicine, right? Right? because of who it came from. And so you'd be looking as the burning happened, you'd be waiting for your chest to clear and your sinuses to open up. doesn't matter that it tastes bad if it works, right? That's Buckley's entire marketing slogan. Sometimes the Lord's discipline tastes bad. It hurts. It's difficult. But we know him. We ought to trust him implicitly. And we ought to be looking for his blessing as it comes through it. Man, so clear how God works that out if you're, if you're watching for it. I was meeting with a biblical counselor about a year and a half ago, wrestling through some just difficult trials, some of it from my sin, trying to, to see things clearly, deep pain in my soul, 
And he looked at me and he said, John, are you thankful? <laughs> what? I, to, to steal a line from one of the speakers at the conference, I leaned forward at this wise counselor that I loved and I wanted to punch him in the mouth. Right? Like, no, I'm not thankful. As he walked me through over and over again these passages that call us to trust the Lord and be thankful, um, I will admit to you, it took me a long time to get to thankful. God, why would you do this? This hurts. I don't like this. But God was at work. God was sanctifying and shaping and forming me. God was doing things that I never could have planned, never could have seen. And it's not easier Buckley's doesn't taste any better because it works, Um, but I can sure be thankful for some Buckley's when I need it. I can sure be thankful for suffering when I need the Lord's sanctification. The Lord is the great physician of our souls. He doesn't give us poison cups. He doesn't lead us down dead-end roads. Some of his remedies are pretty hard to swallow, um, but he is good and he does good. Always. The imagery here is huge. The promise is significant. This is the the Abrahamic covenant, God's personal guarantee on top of that handed to Jacob. And he's standing in front of this, this staircase. And God is making a point. He's saying, I will do it. I will do it. When's the last time we saw a staircase leading up to heaven? Anyone remember? As you're reading your Bible, Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. It's the last story before we get into the story of Abraham. That's intentional. You just recap what we've seen so far coming through the book of Genesis. God created Adam and Eve. He put them in the Garden of Eden. There's mankind in this perfect place. They're set up as God's vice regents to to rule the earth, to display his glory on earth. And, And they live in God's peace and in God's provision and in God's presence. But Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God. And so they're, they're sent out of the garden away from the presence of the Lord. And the whole world falls into chaos out of sin. The Lord brought the flood wiped out sinful humanity and rescued Noah. And Noah is presented in some ways as, uh, as a new Adam. And there's this new creation and we, we see the animals named again and Noah's given the mandate to be fruitful and multiply again. But this new creation, though it's pointing forward, it, God is revealing his plan, but this isn't it. It doesn't work. Sinfulness continues to infect the human heart. So right after Noah, what happens? We see the people gather together. They decide that they would make for themselves a tower, a tower up to the heavens. They said, we will make a name for ourselves and we will build a gate to heaven, they call it. The Lord will have nothing of it. He dashes their efforts. He confuses their language and he scatters them, scatters the the nations, the peoples from there. And in the very next passage, he calls Abraham. He scatters the people and he calls Abraham. They had said, we will make a name for ourselves. And the Lord says to Abraham, I will make a name for you. I will make your name great. 
and I will multiply you. There's echoes here again of a new Adam, a new creation that's coming. And through you, all of these scattered nations will be blessed. So Abraham, again, is, is being put forward in as a sort of new Adam. There's a new creation coming. God is saying, I will bring you back to that Garden of Eden-like place. I will bring you back to my peace and my provision and my presence. And through Abraham, God is promising to restore them to the Garden. Except we know by this point, humanity is not able to be faithful. They can't do it. They fail constantly. They are incapable of keeping their end of the bargain with God. But God says, I will do it. I will do it. Genesis 15 is this incredible tension built all of a sudden. The Lord seals this covenant that he made with Abraham the same way the ancient peoples did by killing a heifer, a goat, a ram, and two birds, splitting them in two and laying them on either side of a path. And they would walk down the path together as a way of saying, if I don't keep my part of the covenant, if I'm not faithful to this promise we've made, then I will become like one of those animals. I stake my life on it. I swear by my life. Except in this instance, instead of both parties walking together down the path, the Lord puts Abraham into a deep sleep and God alone walks down the blood path. The Lord is saying, I will do it. I will do it. And if either side breaks the covenant, I will take the penalty. It will be me who dies. Now, you're already jumping ahead, but, but put yourself back here. This doesn't make sense. God can't say I will die. There's this tension building. Now to Jacob, the Lord is continuing to affirm and build and, and clarify this promise, this covenant the Tower of Babel, sinful humanity did their best to build a staircase up to God and God knocked it down and spread them out. At Jacob's ladder, he's saying, I will build the staircase. I will do it. I will be the one who, who establishes and moderates the comings and goings between heaven and earth. I will come down to you. Babel, by the way, means the gate of God. Verse 17, Jacob says, this is the gate of heaven. This is, the, this is the real deal. The Lord is the gatekeeper. He opens the gate. God was promising that he would come and rescue humanity. And that though the offspring of, uh, through the offspring of Jacob, that, that all nations, all the nations that were scattered at Babel would be brought in as a company of nations, a company of peoples. Blessed through Jacob. Now fast forward. John 1.51. Jesus is speaking to Philip. And listen to these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Weird thing to say out of the blue. Amazing thing to say if you know what Jacob's ladder is. He's saying, I'm the way. I'm the staircase. I am God coming down. It is, it is by me that you will be reconciled to God. You don't, you don't climb up to God on your own Tower of Babel. Um, it will be me coming down to you. 
And of course, Jesus is God himself coming down and he would go to the cross where he would die and he would take on himself the penalty of the broken covenant. After his death and resurrection, the the theme of Babel shows up again. The Holy Spirit comes down in tongues of fire. The disciples go out and they begin to preach. Listen to these words, Acts 2, starting verse 6. And this, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who speak in Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and all parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Why the big list of people from all over? Because God had scattered the peoples and now he's bringing them back. They're hearing now in one language. They're united. He's he's saying, this is the unscattering. This is the anti-Babel. This is the beginning of all the families of the earth being blessed in Christ, being brought into the church. The redeemed people of God out of every nation coming to Jesus to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham. God did it, and he is doing it. Jesus is the true and final new Adam. And he will actually bring in the new creation. Started at Pentecost. New creation. Truly began a a new humanity. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. And it will be completed when Jesus comes again. Listen to Revelation 21, 1 to 3. Then I saw new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's it. That's the, that's the new creation. That's the culmination of what God had promised to not only to, to Abraham, but to Adam. Jacob's ladder, this, this stairway coming down out of heaven is a, is a metaphorical summary of the, the, the message of the entire Bible. That's what it's all about. That though we are sinners, God will make a way. He will restore humanity. He will return us to his peace and his provision and his presence. He will do it. This is the promise of God to Jacob. That his his hope rests in. He's looking at, at this. This is what sustains him, not only for the next 20 years of slaving away under Laban, but for the rest of his life. It's this unparalleled promise of God, and and that has to be our hope as well. You are not faithful. You are not righteous. You are not good enough. You are not a good person. You have not impressed God. 
You will not in any way be able to climb yourself up to him. Stop. It is God who saves. We are sinful and broken. He has come for us. Can you rest in that? Put down your striving and your working and and rest in that. Stop fearing and fretting that you're not enough and rest in that. So we have to recognize his undeserved plan. We need to rest in his unparalleled promise. Finally, we're called then to respond in unreserved praise. Unreserved praise. Look at verses 16 to 22. This is Jacob's response. We've already kind of had a sneak peek here. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on it, and he called the name of the place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So Jacob awoke from his dream and he was in awe. His first reaction is not about God's gifts, but about God's glory. Verse 17 says he was afraid. And he says, how awesome is this place? It's common today to to downplay the idea of the fear of the Lord. We kind of redefine it. We want to soften it. It's just, it's like respect. It's not really a fear kind of fear. Now, I beg to differ. I think Jacob is terrified. I think he has fear. He knew that he was sinful, that he had done wrong. I think he was shaken to think that the the almighty creator God, the righteous, holy judge of the world was there in that place and he didn't even know it. That's a terrifying thought. It should be. But that fear is matched with awe and wonder as he also sees the grace of God and the promises of God. Together, those lead him to worship. He sets up this stone as a pillar. Um, Again, the Hebrew is not a precise language. It's very picturesque. Um, The the, the stone that he used as a pillow, um, well, ESV says put uh, under his head. King James adds as a pillow. Um, I think it might be at his head. I think it may have been uh, like a sense of protection. I think he might feel vulnerable running away from his brother. Um, I think it's bigger than a pillow stone, and yet it's small enough that he's able to stand it on end. Of course, if you've ever been out hiking in the mountains, you see the little anukshuks. It doesn't take much to, to stand out as a pillar. So he stands this rock up in a prominent place. He pours, pours oil on it to consecrate it, and then he makes a vow to God. That's a little bit debated here. Again, Jacob uh, says to the Lord, if... God will do these things, then the Lord shall be my God. Some would look down on Jacob for for bargaining with God, for not fully trusting the Lord. 
I, I don't think it should be read that way. Um, maybe. Jacob's still learning. He's far from perfect. Um, I think the if there uh, could just as well be read as a since. Since God the Almighty, the faithful, unchanging God of Abraham and Isaac, since he has promised to do all of these things, then I will give myself unreservedly to him. This is an important moment for Jacob. You might say this is his conversion moment. Um, he is far from perfect. He has much to learn. But, but it is this moment that the Lord becomes his God. And he makes this vow, dedicating himself to the Lord. Having seen the, the glory of the Lord, received the promises of the Lord, he responds by, by giving himself to the Lord. The first part of this vow is, is the most comprehensive. Um, the Lord shall be my God. I mean, really, he could stop there. Um, that's it. He gives himself fully and completely submission to God. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my plan. You will be my God. I will honor you. I will follow you. Secondly, he gives himself to remembrance and to worship. That's this, this stone pillar. This lasting testimony, what God had done, this would be a place where God would be honored. And then thirdly, the, the ongoing testimony of his submission, an acknowledgement that it's the Lord's care and, and provision. He vowed that whatever the Lord would give him, he would return a full tenth as an offering of worship. And again, Jacob is far from perfect. He has many lessons yet to be learned, but, but this right here is a, is a beautiful example for us. Jacob only saw a, a glimpse of God's glorious plan. He, he doesn't understand the fullness of what this ladder will mean, but he's responding. We see Christ come. We have so, so much more. How, how do we respond? How do you respond? First and foremost, have you made the Lord your God? You submitted to him fully and completely. No more of this, that's a nice idea, God, but this time I'm going to do it my way. No, he's my God. Resting in his unparalleled promise, recognizing his undeserved plan. Have you made him your God? Have you truly submitted yourself in humility to him? Second one's maybe a little bit trickier. This, this idea of setting up a pillar was a, a cultural thing that they did, that they knew. I think in some ways you could correlate this to baptism. It's a public display. The Lord has met me here. God has saved me, and I want to display that in a public, tangible way, a memorial of what the Lord has done. Even beyond that, we ought to mark and remember what, what God has done, the times that, that the Lord has met you in your weakness or in your despair, when he's rescued you when you thought rescue was impossible. The third thing is this ongoing and beautiful act of sacrificial, worshipful giving. Jacob vows whatever the Lord would give to him, he will return a full tenth as an act of worship. Do you give to the Lord? In worship. The issue of tithing, I think it's a little bit confused in our day. If you look at it through scripture, it's not a, a clean shot from there to here. We have to unpack some things. Um, the word tithe simply means a tenth, just means 10%. So you can't tithe 5%. You can't do it. Mathematically impossible. Um, 
We saw it first in Abraham, giving a tenth of the, the spoils of war to Melchizedek, the, pro, or the priest of God. Later, it was picked up then by Moses. And, and along with various other sacrifices and, and gifts, the Israelites were also to give one-tenth of their income every year as an act of worship. This was a, a regular standard practice of worship through the Old Testament. Today, since the coming of Christ, um, we're no longer under the law. We're not under the, the Mosaic law. Hebrews 7.12 is one place that makes that clear. Where there's a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in law as well. Jesus Christ is our new high priest. He has fulfilled uh, the completion of the old covenant. We're under a new covenant. We live under the law of Christ. And there is no law on us that says you must give 10%. It's not there. But of course, Jacob was also before Moses, before that law was given. He wasn't under any law. His focus, if you look at this, it's, it's not at what he must give to God, but at what God has given to him. And now in Christ, we've been given so, so much more. Giving is a beautiful opportunity for practical, sacrificial worship. Tenth is no longer required by law. Paul says this about financial giving, 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So we're no longer bound to give 10%, but we're rewarded for generous, joyful giving. The Lord is honored by that worship and he will reward it. 10% is not law, but I would suggest it's a good place to start. It's a good, healthy minimum to have maybe in the back of your mind and say, that's a, that's a you know, how much? I don't know. Here's a good biblical principle that we see. If your practice of giving has been haphazard or maybe non-existent, I would encourage you, sit down. Sit down with your spouse this afternoon. Sit down with, if it's just you and your banking account, make a plan. Maybe like Jacob, maybe you need to make a vow to God. This is what I'm going to do. Lord, this is how I want to honor you. Engage in that. Joyful, regular, worshipful giving. And, and I get it. There's inflation and there's expenses and, and money is tight. Um, I just confess to you, I am not the giver in our family. Um, that's hard on me. I'm a saver. I, I feel the weight of being the provider and I want to just hang on to everything. And, and my dear and patient wife is constantly saying, hey, honey, <laughs> open your fists. This is good. Um, it's a beautiful act of worship. Um, Together, we committed earlier our marriage that no matter what, we're going to give 10% to the Lord. And uh, we've been through some tough times. And four years of seminary with four kids, um, it was not easy. I had to get over the fact that I'm not the ultimate provider. I can't guarantee what comes next. I'm giving away something I don't know how to get back. And I don't, I don't know how we're going to pay tuition or groceries next month. And it was in some of those leanest times 
when I most needed to be reminded that everything I had was a gift from the Lord. That he is the one who provides and I need to trust him in that and not me. And those times the practice of giving became the most precious act of worship. So no, I'm not going to lay a burden on you. I hope you're not feeling it that way. I don't intend it that way. But I do want to point you to God's word. I do want to say this is a beautiful thing. This is a good and glorious thing. God is honored in that and you will be blessed in that as you trust in him, as you worship him. And notice, this is what the Lord is doing in the life of Jacob, in the heart of Jacob, as he's walking through this low point in his life, as he's grinding through this difficult time. Not only is God working out his grand plan of salvation, but he's teaching and shaping and forming and blessing Jacob right in the middle of the fallout of his sin. Jacob's ladder shows up right in the darkness of night, in the middle of Jacob's sin and consequences, is when the Lord comes to him and says to him, just as he says to us, recognize my undeserved plan, rest in my unparalleled promise, and respond with unrestrained praise. What a gracious, gracious God we have. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace towards us when we were so undeserving. We are so undeserving. Lord, thank you that you are bigger than our sin, that you are able to continue your plan, or that you're over it, that we don't mess you up, but that you are faithful, and that you are sovereignly at work. Even through our sin, you are working out your plan. Father, help us to walk before you as Jacob was learning to do. Lord, help us to see your absolutely undeserved grace. Help us to, to see your promises in their magnitude as you are working out this marvelous salvation. Lord, soften our hearts, awaken our hearts to trust you in worship, to praise you with all that we are, with all that we have, that you would be honored in it, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our closing song today? Mm -hmm.